those of you that are with us live and for those of you that are joining us out on Facebook, we're excited that you're here. Hopefully you brought your Bibles tonight back in the back or uh, your worship notes. We're going to be covering some things tonight that was very difficult for me to figure out what to put down for what you might need to get out of this story. So you have a lot of blank lines tonight and you're going to write down whatever it is that you think God wants you to get out of this and that way we'll put down the right things. Lane and I like to watch uh, the show The Voice. I don't know how many of you ever seen that. You've got four judges, their backs are turned to the stage, a person comes out and sings, and if that voice resonates with one of the judges, they push the button and they turn around, they try to get them to be on their team. And every once in a while, ever so often, uh, one of the uh, judges will recognize a voice, so they'll recognize something about that person, and then once they kind of turn around, they figure it out. So I want you to kind of be one of those judges tonight, and I'm going to play a voice, and I want you to listen to it, and if you recognize that voice when you hear it, I want you to raise your hand, okay? You ready? Here we go. Now, the rest of the story. Are we going to play it one more time? Okay, let's see if anybody recognizes it the second time. Now... The rest of the story. All right, raise your hand if you recognize who that was. All right, about 50 feet. I didn't know if we would have 50% or not. We're at about 50%. That's a gentleman by the name of... Paul Harvey. And Paul Harvey had uh, these radio snippets that he would do. And he would begin each snippet with... Now for the rest of the story. And he would give these obscure facts about something that you were familiar with, a story that you were familiar with, but he would give these facts about it that weren't readily known. For instance, he talked about one time how that Michael Jordan didn't make his ninth grade high school basketball team. Or he talked another time about how that John Wesley was rescued as a two-year-old from a burning church and that God miraculously intervened in his life. One time he told the story how that Mark McGuire was a great pitcher for USC. And one summer he went and played uh, a semi-pro ball on an ice glacier in Alaska, and it was there that the coach talked him into playing first base, and he found out that he could ultimately be one of the greatest hitters of all time, so he gave up pitching when he went back that semester. So a lot of these little tidbits, these things that we find were things that he would be telling us, and so as I was thinking about that, I thought about the parts of the story that we're all very familiar with. We're very familiar with the story of the crucifixion. It's going to be a story that we're going to talk about on, excuse me, Good Friday at our Good Friday service that we'll have here at the church. And we want you to come be a part of that. We're familiar with that story. We're very familiar with the resurrection story. That'll be the story that we'll be concentrating on on Easter Sunday morning in the two worship services that will be happening. But in the words of Paul Harvey, what about the rest of the story? What about that, those things that took place between Jesus' crucifixion and between his resurrection? What was it that Jesus was doing during that period of time? Was he just kind of hanging out in the tomb? Was he participating in some kind of soul sleep? What exactly was going on? So if you'll take your Bibles tonight, we're going to be in the book of 1 Peter. And we're going to see what Peter t- tells us and teaches us about that. As you know, we're working through the book of First Peter verse by verse, expositorily on Wednesday nights. And what we're determining and what we're looking at is that Peter is saying, in spite of persecution, in spite of suffering, you've got a choice to make. You can either choose to be bitter about it or you can choose to be better. And he's been giving us solid teaching. He's been giving us great illustrations that we can put into, into effect so that we can live better and not bitter. And so tonight he comes to 
probably one of the most difficult passages of Scripture to be able to understand and interpret correctly in all of the New Testament. Martin Luther, the leader of the Protestant Reformation, this is what he said about this passage. He said, this is a strange text and certainly a more obscure passage than any other passage in the New Testament. I still do not know for sure what the apostle means. In other words, we're going to look at this tonight and I'm going to do my best to explain to you what I understand hermeneutically what this passage is saying. The word hermeneutics just mean the way that you interpret the Bible. I'm going to do my best, but I'm not going to be dogmatic. So if you want to come up here at the end of the service and debate me over it, it's going to be a very quick debate because I'm going to say, okay, because I get to share what I think it means. And I would say, I really don't care what you have to say. I just won't have time, I promise. That's exactly what it is. And uh, we'll get out of here in a timely fashion. So let's begin tonight making sure that we understand two hermeneutical practices that are very important for us to implement when we come to a difficult passage. And the first one is, the Bible will never contradict itself. Anytime that you look at a difficult passage, understand the Bible will never contradict itself. Ephesians chapter 2 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourself, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. If I'm reading through scripture and I see a passage of scripture and I say, boy, it sure does look like I have to do something to be saved. I know that I'm incorrectly interpreting that passage of scripture. There's a passage that makes perfect sense. There's a passage that's very clear that there's nothing that I do for salvation. So I have to look at that passage in light of that passage of scripture, which brings us to the second hermeneutical approach is, and that's when I come to a difficult passage and I'm not really sure sure what to make out of what the writer is saying. What I need to always look for is what's Jesus doing in this passage of scripture. What is it that's going on with Jesus? And as a result of that, what can I take from that to put into my life so that I can be more like Jesus? I may not understand all the nuances. I may not understand everything about it, but I know I want to extract from this what's going on with Jesus and make that applicable into my life. So let's begin simply reading this passage tonight. As we read through it, you're going to hear some things that are probably going to go, oh, I see why it's a kind of a difficult passage. And then we'll kind of break it down and work through it. First Peter chapter three and verse 18 through 22 is our focal text. It says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which also... He went and made proclamation to the spirits now in prison, who once were disobedient, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and powers had been subjected to him. So I'm just going to kind of now walk you through this passage of scripture. You have blank pages. You have empty lines. You write down whatever it is that you feel led to write down that will help you as we work through this. And the first thing that I notice in this passage of scripture that Peter's talking about, he's talking about the vicarious death 
of Jesus Christ. In verse 18, he says, Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. If you were going to summarize the entire Bible in one sentence, I don't believe that you could do a better job of doing that than what Peter has done right here in this one verse. He is, he's very clearly helping us to understand that Jesus vicariously he died on the cross for you and for me. Now, we've talked about this word vicarious in previous studies in First Peter, but just as a reminder, remember, vicarious simply means to endure something or to experience something in the place of someone else. To endure something or experience something. So, in other words, what Peter's getting across here is that Jesus' death was substitutionary. The death that he died on the cross, it was substitutionary. In other words, 2,000 years ago, when Jesus died on that hill called Golgotha outside of Jerusalem, it had to have been the most terrible death, but yet the most terrific death that ever transpired. It was terrible from the, from the standpoint that a totally righteous man in whom there was absolutely no sin, he died for you and me. It was utterly terrible but it was utterly terrific because he was willing to substitute himself for us, substitute himself for the unjust, for the unrighteous, step into our own sinfulness on our behalf. We have the privilege to know that we can have eternal life tonight. Now, let me ask you a question in light of that. Have you ever wondered why your children are just so I'll let you fill in the blank there. Depends on what kind of day that you've had. But I, I, I will say, have you ever wondered why your children, as hard as you work and as long as you do and as tirelessly as you try to under, help them understand things, have you under, ever understand why they just continue to do things that you don't want them to do? And it doesn't matter what age that we're talking about right now. Kids just don't do. Do you know why that they don't do what we ask them to do? Take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Romans. On Wednesday night, I ask you to turn to a lot of passages with me as we're doing our seminary training there in Belize. One of the things we're challenging them to do is memorize the books of the Old Testament and the New Testament. Be familiar how to get to those books on your own. It's very important for us to be able to do that. And so if that's something that you've never done, you're new in your faith, you're new to growing in your faith, use that Bible. Learn where these books are. Learn the songs. You can go out on YouTube and they've got all these neat songs that you can learn that'll help you memorize uh, the different books of the Bible. And so I want you to be able to do that. But tonight in Romans chapter five, we find why our kids just don't always do what they're supposed to do <clears throat> and why we don't always do what we're supposed to do, right? It's because we're sinners by nature. In Romans five twelve, it says, just as through one man, sin entered into the world and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all have Sin. The reason kids act the way that they do, the reason that we act like we do is because we were born sinners. We did not have to do anything. We did not have to take any action. That is the nature to which we were inherited or we were given at the time. And now flip over to Romans chapter 3. There's a, there's a consequence of the fact that we were born as sinners and that that's our nature. In Romans chapter 3 and verse 10, it's a very familiar passage. It says, because we're born sinners, that means there's none righteous, not even one. 
There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. That is the, that's the picture of humanity. That is the picture of if you and I tried to go to the cross, that is what we would be able to offer God. We would be able to offer him unjustness and we would be able to offer him a filthiness because we're unholy. We're, we're sinners simply because we were born. But the other side of that coin, the other side of that story that Peter's getting at to this, uh, this evening in our passage is that God is holy. God is just. God is worthy to be able to go to the cross and pay the price that we couldn't pay. But how can that happen? How can a holy God allow an unholy person? How can a holy God in which there is no, there is no contamination, how can he allow someone like me that's dead in my trespasses and sin, how could he ever allow me to be in his presence? And we know the answer to that is because God sent his son, because God was willing to allow Jesus and Jesus was willing to accept the responsibility to be the substitution for us. But listen to me very carefully. Jesus didn't come to die for good people. Jesus didn't come to die for decent people. Jesus came to die for the entire human race. And the reason is, is because the entire human race is dead in our trespasses and sin at the moment of our birth. And now listen to what an amazing thing it is. Look back at Romans chapter five with me and look at verse eight. In Romans chapter five and verse eight, this is what God does for us. God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, while we were contaminated, while we were not worthy to be able to come into his presence, Christ died for us. In other words, he loved us so much. Peter, uh, excuse me, Paul talks about in 2 Corinthians 5, he says, he made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Peter's dialing in here. He said, I want you to understand Jesus's substitutionary death that he died for you. The next thing he talks about is that this substitutionary death that Jesus died, it was a death that was sufficient for your sins. It was sufficient. Look back there at first Peter chapter three and verse 18. Listen to that opening statement. It's the song that Chris just led us in. It says, for Christ also died for sins once for all. The one, the word once that we find in this passage of scripture, it doesn't mean, you know, kind of like we're used to that word once where it says once upon a time, something happened. He, he literally means by this word in the, in the word that he uses in the Greek language is Jesus once and done died for your sins. It, it was a one time event that it was the only thing that had to happen. When Jesus died on the cross, as John records for us in John chapter 19, he says, After this, Jesus, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. And excuse me, and a jar full of sour wine was standing there. So they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop and brought it up to his mouth. And therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. What did Jesus mean when he said, it is finished? I'll never forget those words as I was uh, in my oral defense of my doctoral dissertation. I went into the crucible and it was there that, that they had the right to ask me any question about anything that was down on that piece of paper. 
And for a couple of hours, they did just that. They asked questions, and they made me show them proof that the things that I had written down were the way that they were so. And then they dismissed me to my professor's office, and they deliberated, and they talked about whether or not I had fulfilled the requirements to be a doctor. They called me back into that room, and it was this little cell kind of place, and they had bright lights shining on you, and they had turned the heat up really. You know, you're sweating and all these things. And I'll never forget, Dr. Autry looked at me, and he said, Galen, it is finished. And at that moment, I knew exactly what he was talking about. I would never write another paper. I would never do another piece of homework. I would never attend another class. I was done. I had reached the title of doctor, and I was never going to study again. Amen. Don't tell Carson that. I wasn't going to study in that capacity anyway. That was the end of the road. And that's exactly what Jesus said when he said it is finished. He was saying there's no more sacrificing sheep. There's no more altars. There's no more holy of holies. Once and for all, once and done, salvation has been accomplished and everything necessary for man to be saved, it was accomplished on the cross. Elvina Hall captures this in the, in the leaflet of a songbook that she was doodling in in 1885 as the pastor was preaching on this topic. And she said, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson, crimson stain, but what happened? Jesus, well, sing that with me. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Unfortunately, there's some people in our world today, and there's been doctrines that have been passed down through generations that says that all that Jesus did is he made a down payment on the cross. There's still other things that you have to do. Jesus started the process, but you've got to be a good person and you've got to do these righteous things and you've got to be all about all these different things in order for this transaction to be complete. And I want you to know from scripture, that is absolutely false. I don't go to church to make a payment. I go to church because the payment was made for me. I'm not baptized to make a payment. I'm not trying to be a good person in order to earn my way into salvation. The substitutionary death of Jesus Christ handled that for me. It was his vicarious death that paid the payment. That's why Peter's bringing this out. He's saying it's a substitutionary death. It's a sufficient death. There's nothing that needs to be added to it. And then he says it's also a successful death. In other words, the object of Jesus' death on the cross was to bring us to God. Many years ago, there was a statement that people would have sometimes used, and it would say, all roads lead to Rome, right? That kind of turned into all religions lead to God. And I want you to know, when I get on I-45 right out here and I start traveling north, I will not end up in Rome. Now, I may end up in Rome, Texas. I'm not really sure where that is, but I'm not going to end up on the other side of the world in Rome by being on that road. So that's an erroneous statement, just like all religions lead to God is, a, is an erroneous statement as well. Can I tell you today that there is no religion that leads to God? There's only a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that leads us there. You don't go to God through religion. You don't go to God through morality. You don't go to God 
through good works. You only have the privilege to go to God through the person of Jesus Christ. I shared with you recently, I read uh, D.L. Moody's biography, and I came across this story, and it made sense having read that biography. One day he was about to go in and preach one of his revival services over in England, and there was a little boy that was sitting outside of the, the, the great hall where the service was going to be, and he was just crying, and he was, he was bawling. And D.L. Moody walked up and he said, son, what's wrong? And he said, I can't get a ticket. I want a ticket. I want to hear D.L. Moody preach, not knowing that he was talking to D.L. Moody at the time. So D.L. Moody had a heart for kiddos, and he, he looked down at him and said, tell you what you do. You, you, see my, you, see, you see my coattails? And back then, they wore those long coattails that time. He said, you grab a hold of my coattails, and you don't let go, and you follow me, and you're going to get to hear D.L. Moody preach. The doors of the great hall opened, and D.L. Moody started walking in, and right behind him was that little boy hanging on to his coattails. And as they approached the, 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 the pulpit, as they approached the stage for him to go up, the ushers were standing there, and they walked toward that little boy. And D.L. Moody said, never mind, he's with me. I want you to know that you don't get into heaven on your own accord. You get into heaven by the coattails of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. When death comes calling, he says, don't mess with him. He's with me. I paid the vicarious death. I paid the substitutionary death. I paid the sufficient death for that person. And when they confessed with their mouth, the Lord Jesus Christ, and believed in their heart that God raised me from the dead, that that moment they're part of my family. And as a result of that, they are forever safe with me. Then we see in this passage of scripture, once that's been established and once we don't, doesn't that just give you a peace in your heart when you hear things like that? It's kind of like that old song we used to sing. I love to tell the story for those who know it best because they seem hungering and thirsting to hear it like the rest. Man, y'all's faces are just lighting up out here as I'm talking about this because it's something you understand. It's something you've experienced. Now, with that as the baseline, now we move into this very difficult part of this passage where Peter talks about the victorious declaration of Jesus Christ. He talks about something that Jesus declared. Look with me again there in verse 18 of chapter three. He says, for Christ also died for sins once for all, the just for the unjust, so that he might bring us to God, having been put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit in which he went and made proclamation to the spirit's now in prison. Now, whatever this passage teaches us, and I'm going to kind of get there, but whatever, at a baseline, whatever this passage teaches us, it does not teach us that there's a second chance to come into a relationship with Jesus Christ after that we die. So this thing about baptism for the dead or purgatory or an opportunity to be able to be able to be saved after life, we know that's totally erroneous, again, because of the hermeneutical principles that we find in Scripture. In Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 27, it says, Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after that death comes the judgment. It's at the moment of our death that judgment occurs as to whether or not we've experienced, we've accepted this substitutionary death that Jesus Christ died for us. So whatever this passage says, it definitely does not say that there's any second chance for a person to be saved after they die. So we see that it's a difficult passage and it must have been difficult in light of what we're seeing so far, that, that the readers of this letter or the recipients of this letter had a hard time with this passage as well. 
Because when Peter writes his second letter to these same people in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, he makes comment about this that he's talking about here. He says, God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment. Now, Peter uses a very interesting word here in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4 for the word hell. It's the only time that this word is used in the New Testament. It's the word tatarasos, and it's, it's an interesting word from a secular perspective. I, I shared with you recently how that that uh, Spirosodietes is, is someone that I read after when it comes to the nuances of the Greek language. And he, he has a comment on this word, and this is what he has to say. He says this Tatarasos, this, this, this place that Paul, or excuse me, that Peter has talked about, he said that this, this is the subterranean abyss of Greek mythology where demigods were punished. It's found only in its verbal form in 2 Peter chapter 2 and verse 4, meaning to cast into or consign to Taurus, which is the verbal, excuse me, the noun form of this word. It is part of the realm of death designated in Scripture as Sheol in the Old Testament and Hades in the New Testament. And then listen to what he says. He says, Peter's usage of this term is not evidence that Peter himself believed in the pagan myths about Tartarus. Peter has adapted a word and not adopted a theology. In other words, Peter is using a term that that culture would understand, trying to help them understand what's the rest of the story. What happened between the time that Jesus died and the time of his resurrection? He said, I'm going to use a terminology that you understand. I don't know if you remember a few weeks ago, I, I said, uh, I used the word goat in the, in the service. Does anybody remember that in the second service? The only way you might remember that is when I said it, Jake laughed out loud, really loud. And everybody kind of turned and looked at him back there. When I said goat, does anybody have any idea what I was meaning? Greatest of all time. So what I was trying to get across was something in recent vernacular that our students would understand about something that I was trying to teach them and help them understand because of the vernacular of the day. Okay, this is what Peter is doing in this passage of Scripture. He's trying to, in the vernacular of the day, writing to those that are reading this letter, trying to help them understand what the rest of the story is. Jude goes into this. He gives us greater insight into this perplexing passage in Jude 6. He says, The angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. So from this passage of Scripture, it seems to be what Peter's telling us is that what happened between the time of Jesus's death and Jesus's resurrection, that he went to this place, he went to this prison, and it was there that he spoke to a group of fallen angels that had specifically been put in that location. From just simple hermeneutical practices, that's exactly what it seems to be taking place. You remember a few weeks ago, and, and someone asked me about it. Um, Brett, I think it was you last Wednesday night. You asked me about when the, when the, when the, when the demons that were in the demoniac, the, the legion of demons, they said, please let us go into the swine. Don't cast us into the abyss. I believe this is the location that they were talking about. This, this special place that was reserved for these demons that had been cast into this location. Now, what you may be asking is, pa Pastor, hang on just a second. 
You told me that there's no such thing as a second chance. So why would Jesus go to this place and speak to these demons that have been locked up in this location? Well, I I think, again, we have to understand hermeneutically what's going on. There's two words that we find in the Greek language for preaching. The first is euangelos, and that's where we get our word evangelism. Evangelism is telling the good news of Jesus Christ. It's telling of the death, burial, and, of, and, and resurrection of Christ. The second word that we find is caruso, and it simply means to announce publicly. The, the king's, uh, the king's uh, special valet, he might send him to another town and ask him to Caruso that the king is showing up. He's just making a proclamation. He's making an announcement. And that's the word that is used here. So Jesus did not go into this location to preach the gospel to these spirits. He went into this place to declare to them, guess what, guys? It's finished. The victory has been sealed. It is, it, it, it's a victory that's over Satan. It's a victory that's over sin. It's a victory over death. He proclaimed to them, I fulfilled what I said I would do. Guys, do you remember back in the Garden of Eden when y'all were over there and you were kind of snickering in the background as, as Satan had caused Adam and Eve to sin and, and you thought that, that Satan had the upper hand and how that you had somehow foiled my plan for humanity. And, and you thought it was just so funny that I thought that I was going to be in control of this. Guys, do you remember what I said in Genesis chapter three and verse 15? He said, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and I shall bruise him on the heel. Well, demons, let me tell you something. I'm about to crush him. You see, my body is dead in the grave, but I live forevermore. And three days from now, I'm going to return and I'm going to show everybody that I am the great I am, that I am the savior of the world. I am the one that died vicariously so that people could be taken into the presence of God. And so he doesn't go there to preach evangelism. He goes there to announce to them what you tried to do, I've overcome. Now, some people talk about that, that, that all you have to do to be able to preach is you just got to have three good points in a poem. That's all you got to do. If you can come up with three good points in a poem, then you can preach to anybody and everybody. I don't know where anybody came up with that. But what I do know is Jesus had three good points that he shared with these spirits. He shared, number one, it's finished. He shared, number two, you're vanquished. And he shared, number three, I am Lord. And there's absolutely nothing that you can do about it. A few years ago, our, our theme verse was out of Philippians chapter 2, verses 3 through 11. Does anybody remember that? You remember that passage of scripture? You remember it, Alan? Quote it for us. Stand up for me. Do nothing. Do nothing out of self-sufficiency. And I, I put it out of the, uh, the NIV. I can't help you, dude. You're on your own. <laughs> do nothing out of self-sufficiency. Selfish ambition, vain conceit, but in humility. Think of others as better than yourselves. Everyone should look towards, not, not towards their own interests, but also the interests of others. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest and gave him the name above every name, that the name of Jesus. Every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. 
and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Excellent, dude. That was all. That was like 2012 that we memorized that one. Did you hear what Jesus said, or do you hear, do you hear what, uh, what, what Paul said in that passage of Scripture? He said, because of the victorious death of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow of those in heaven and those on earth and those that are under the earth. And this is what Jesus was proclaiming to these spirits. I have done what I said it is that I want to do. And as a result of that, then what we understand for us, that we're not here on this earth fighting for salvation. We're, we're not here fighting for victory. We're on this earth fighting from our salvation. We're fighting from the fact that victory has already been won. Salvation is finished. Satan is vanquished and Jesus is Lord, which means that our victory is guaranteed. So look what Peter writes after this, after he's made this statement. He's talking about these spirits in verse 20. He says, who once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah. During the construction of the ark in which a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Corresponding to that, baptism now saves you, not the removal of dirt from the flesh, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, there's many in other denominations that when they, they read this passage of Scripture right here, they believe that it very clearly says that baptism is necessary for salvation. But, but as I've looked at this passage and as we've studied that, again, putting in the hermeneutical principles that we've talked about, if there is a passage that very clearly speaks to something, then a difficult passage cannot contradict it. There's no way that this passage of Scripture is saying that water baptism saves you. There's no way that's what this passage of Scripture. On the surface, it seems to be saying that. But again, when it says, for by grace, you've been saved through faith and that not of yourself, it's a gift of God, not as a result of work so that one, no one may boast. There's no way in the world that Peter is teaching that baptism is responsible or baptism is a part of the salvation experience. So this is a difficult passage. It's something I don't understand. It's something that, that I see can't contradict scripture. It still doesn't make sense to me. So let me see what Jesus is doing in this passage of scripture. And let me see how that applies to me so that I can correctly understand this. So go back to verse 21. In first Peter three twenty one, he says, corresponding to that. What is he talking about? Well, he's talking about what he has just said in verse 20. I've just told you something in verse 20 corresponding to that. Well, what did he just tell us in verse 20? He said, these spirits once were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. So he's, he's referring to these spirits that are, that are locked up in Tartarus, this, this prison, and it seems when we take the whole council of scripture and we put this together, that these were disobedient. These were angels that had fallen out of heaven. These were angels that had followed Satan. They, they're loose here on this earth and their evil influence was having such a great impact on the world around them that they were not listening to the message of Noah. For 120 years, Noah is declaring a message. There's fixing to be a flood. And when this flood happens, if you're not inside the ark, you are going to die. And for 120 years, there, uh, Noah, he's trying to help people understand. He's building this ark out in the middle of nowhere. And they've, nobody's seen rain before. And he's doing this. He said, listen, you've got to be in this ark in order to survive the calamity that's about to happen. 
Now, when you go back to Genesis chapter 6, in light of what we just read in Jude, it would appear that these spirits, they inhabited man. And then through that inhabitation, they had children through the women that were alive during that day. And they were spawning evil offsprings. And so this generation was becoming evil and more evil and more evil. And they were having such an influence on the world in which they live that God looks at the world and says, I wish that I hadn't even created mankind. They were having such an influence on the world and on that day that how many people actually experienced salvation through the ark? He just answered it right here. He said it was only eight people. There was a few. These disobedient spirits, when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah for 120 years, listen, everybody looks at the story of Noah and says, well, God sure is judgmental. Yeah, he was after 120 years. After 120 years of the message, make sure you're in the ark. The judgment of God fell because God always keeps his promises. They were disobedient when the patience of God kept waiting in the days of Noah during the construction of the ark. And a few, that is eight persons, were brought safely through the water. Only eight people survived. Why? Because of the evil influence of these spirits that are locked up into Taurus that Peter is talking about. Now, let me ask you a question. Was it the water that saved the eight people? What saved the eight people? The ark saved the eight people. What killed the people? The water is what killed the people, right? So, so it wasn't the water that saved them. It was the ark that saved them. It was the ark that brought eight people safely through the water. And so Peter in this passage of scripture, consequently, in light of this story that you already understand about Noah and the ark, consequently, corresponding to that, using that as an example, the ark is what did the saving, Right. So in this passage, he's saying baptism is what saves you. But that's not the context that's going on here. It is a baptism that saves you, but it's not a physical water baptism that saves you. It's the spiritual baptism of Jesus Christ and asking him into your heart and the Holy Spirit coming upon you at the moment of your salvation. That is what he is talking about here. Physical baptism. What does he say there? This baptism I'm talking about is not the removal of dirt from the flesh. It's not this external thing that happens, this water baptism. I'm talking about spiritual baptism. I'm talking about entering into a personal relationship with Jesus Christ that saves you. Just like Noah and the eight had to be in the ark to be saved, you and I have to be in the person of Jesus Christ in order to experience eternal life. Another passage of scripture that people use erroneously is one that backs up what we're talking about here. It's Galatians chapter three and verse 27. He says, for all of you were baptized into Christ, have clothed yourself in Christ. Not, not physical baptism, spiritual baptism. Those that the Holy Spirit has come on as a result of that, you have been baptized into Christ and you have clothed yourself with Christ. So water baptism does not save you in any way, shape, form, or fashion. But here's the danger in our teaching and in our preaching. Some will take that to mean that baptism is not an important part of the spiritual process. 
Well, pastor, baptism doesn't save me. Baptism doesn't have anything to do with my eternal life. I agree, but it has everything to do with your fellowship with God. It has everything to do about being in a right relationship, not for heaven, but on this earth with who God is. So a word to the wise. If you're sitting here tonight and you're one of those that said, yes, I've been saved, but I just don't see the necessity of going through immersion or believer's baptism. Let me tell you, without believer's baptism, you're not in right standing with God. Your salvation is secure. You're you're not going to lose your salvation, but you're not following that next step of growth by not being willing to be baptized. So baptism, why is that so important? Because baptism is a picture of the salvation that's happened inside of us. Baptism is a picture of the baptism of Jesus Christ that has come upon us. It's a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection. Listen to what Romans chapter 6 says. It says, do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness. Man, that sure does sound like water baptism. No, it doesn't because that would contradict Ephesians chapter 2, 8, 9. And that cannot happen. So I'm looking at it wrong if I'm thinking that this is talking about water baptism. This is talking about salvation is through Christ. And the picture that that's happened in my life is that I participate with believers baptism. So we're in the baptismal pool and we're talking to the person and say, are you confident you've asked Jesus Christ to save you? Are you confident that you have been baptized into Christ? Yes. Then I baptize you, my brother, in the name of the father and the son and the Holy ghost buried in the likeness of his death, raised in the likeness of his resurrection to do what? To walk in the newness of life. To walk the same way that Christ did in this new understanding, in this new way, because he had been raised from the dead. And so what many of you might be asking yourself right now is, Pastor, that made sense. I get it. I'm there with you. That's a difficult passage. And maybe I did a good job. I don't know. Sometimes I'm not sure. But maybe I did. I get exactly where you're coming from. But what in the world does that have to do with living better or better? I mean, that just seems like Paul went, I mean, Peter just went out here on a, on a wild goose chase. He's just over here talking about something that had nothing to do with living bitter or better. No, don't miss it. Don't miss it. Was Jesus God when he came to this earth? Absolutely. Was he 100% human? Absolutely. Because he was 100% human, could he have sinned? Yes. Do you think he could have become bitter when things were done to him the way that they were done to him? Do you think he could have just said, forget about all those people that need to be saved. I didn't do it. I'm not the one that caused them to sin. I, pre, I created perfection. I created the, Adam, uh, the Garden of Eden. I placed them there and they're the ones that messed it up. Why in the world should I be going through all of this I'm going through right now? Forget it, I'm done. Angels, here we go, let's get out of here. Because he had what waiting on him? He said, I could call a legion of angels right now if I wanted to. But I don't want to. Because I know that for all of humanity, there's no way because they're dead in their trespasses and sin 
There's no way that they could ever earn their way into salvation. I'm the only thing that can be offered. And he was willing to endure and not become bitter, but instead become better. And after his resurrection and after he accomplished what it was that God put him here on this earth to do, look what it says in verse 21, very end. It says, Jesus Christ, verse 22, who is at the right hand of God, having gone into heaven after angels and authorities and power have been subjected to him. When you go through the difficulties that you go through in life, and sometimes you want to throw up your hands and say, I just choose to be bitter and not better. You have a savior that's seated at the right hand of God, the father that endured more than you can ever imagine and has gone through more than what you're going through here on this earth. And he's interceding on your behalf to the father. The Holy Spirit has taken residence inside of you. And Peter has given us a picture into how that he has announced beyond a shadow of a doubt and made a proclamation that he's taken care of everything that needs to be taken care of so that A, you can have eternal life and B, beyond a shadow of a doubt, you can live better and not bitter no matter the persecution and no matter the suffering that you deal with here on this earth. And I'm grateful that Peter seemingly took a rabbit trail at this point in the story, but reminded us of what Jesus Christ did for us when he died on the cross. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us this time to open your word tonight. I pray that uh, each of us will, will go away and that we'll study and we'll see exactly what this passage has to say. And then we'll not just be hearers of the word, but we'll be doers. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray these things. Amen.